We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. When you're facing a big, seemingly immovable and lasting problem, like a serious illness, bereavement, caring for a child with a disability or an elderly relative, how do you get up each morning when you're pretty certain that you're going to face the same grind all over again? What you need most is resilience. My witness today is Sherry Mandel, who's the author of several books, but we're going to be focusing on two of them today. The Road to Resilience, From Chaos to Celebration, and her latest, The Kabbalah of Writing, Mystical Practices for Inspiration and Creativity. Because as we will discover, creativity is one of the seven C's of resilience. But I should explain that Sherry does not speak about resilience from an academic standpoint. Back in 2001, her son Kobe, who was a teenager at the time, was murdered in a violent act of terror. So I think before we start talking about resilience, we should start by defining it. And your definition is really beautiful, that has sort of got me thinking a lot. And it is that resilience is not overcoming, but becoming your deepest self. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, resilience, it's from the root of resalir, which is to go back to who you were. And after my son's murder, I understood that going back to who I was was not going to work because I wasn't big enough. I didn't have, in Hebrew, we say the kelim. I didn't have the resources to be able to contain that. Luckily, I had a lot of friends and I sort of had a team that helped me be able to grow in a way that made it able for me and my family to contain the loss. So the way I define resilience is becoming greater. It's becoming bigger than you would have been. In Judaism, we have this idea of, it's called breaking the kelim. It's like breaking the vessel. And I think, you know, Kobe was 13 when he was murdered in 2001. He was my oldest. We had just moved to Israel five years before that. I had three other little children. I did not know how I would ever be able to, I don't even like the word cope or manage because it's like I was destroyed. So the question is, how do you put the pieces back together? I felt that if I put them back together the way they had been, it wouldn't be enough. So it's like I had to bring in other pieces to make the puzzle, to make my being big enough to hold this because you have to change. In the Road to Resilience, I write about a letter I saw in the New York Times where a widow wrote and she said, you know, I'm still the same person. Nothing has changed. And I felt that that wasn't, maybe that was good for her because everybody has their own way to deal with grief. But for me, that would not have worked because I, I feel like grief and trauma, they are an invitation to change and to become greater. And even resilience, 
it has the word in it, salience. And salience is, has to do with what is salient, what is meaningful to you now. And I had to change what was meaningful to me because before Kobe's murder, I was much lazier and I could just be happy lying on a raft in a pool drinking margaritas. Not that, I mean, I had four kids. I didn't have the opportunity to do that, but that was what would have made me happy. And after Kobe's murder, it was like, that was not going to do it. And, you know, it's not just me, it's my children and my husband too. We had to find a way to almost be launched by this loss rather than be buried by it. What do you mean by launched by the loss? Yeah, I've never used that term before. But it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That it had to be a starting point as well as an ending point. Because, of course, you know, losing Kobe, I still grieve him and I'm still... I still get caught up in the loss. Like even yesterday I was driving and all of a sudden I started crying. And I realized because we have a new grandchild and I have a lot of happiness through that, I also feel somehow that what's missing at the same time. But the launching is this idea that you're changed. You know, it's like I became a different person. And so it's almost like death can also contain a rebirth, at least for me. And I think also for some, let's say people who lose their mother or father, I've heard people describe a kind of freedom afterwards because they're no longer dependent on the parents' opinions about them. So that freedom can launch somebody. But also I felt after Kobe was killed, also a kind of freedom because I didn't care what people thought of me. You know, I didn't have like barriers in terms of what I said. I didn't have like a super ego working. I was almost like all id, but there was a freedom in just saying, you know, like I need quiet. I need to be in bed. I need someone to help me. And that was a freedom, but also a freedom in knowing what was important, that everything fell away. And the only things that were important were my family also learning Torah and the words of the Psalms and the words of prayer and my friends and anything that could build me. In fact, one day, you know, where I live, we, we pick up hitchhikers because the, there's not a lot of buses. So one day I picked up like a 15 year old and I was talking to him and I told him how I hated that phrase, be strong. Like people would say to me, be strong. Ugh. And I thought like, why would I be strong? Like, that's not true. I want to be weak. Like I'm falling apart. For me to be strong would be a lie. And then he, we were talking about it and he said to me, no, it's not be strong. It's like guard your strengths, protect your strengths. And I think that I was able to do that because that loss gave me the freedom to say, I need this. I want this. This is good. This is bad. And that that's a kind of launching because you're launched into the truth of what life is because everybody knows that there's death, right? But we kind of avoid it and <laughs> as much as possible and we deny it, but it's there, it's hovering, it's imminent, even though, you know, thank, please God, it will be a long time from now for all of us. But when you have that knowledge of death, 
when it's in your bones, when it's in your body, then you're living with a truth. And that truth can expand you because you're living in a more truthful relationship to the world. So let's look at these seven C's. The first of them is chaos. Now, it's not really very appealing, but you say we should not avoid the chaos because if we avoid it, we can stop from healing. So why should we embrace chaos? Because, I mean, quite frankly, I think we've got enough chaos in our lives. Thank you. No, I hate chaos. And I also try to avoid it. But grief, trauma creates chaos. And I think I was really framing grief as a kind of chaos because you don't have control. I didn't have control over my emotions. And I think that that's important to allow the emotions to rise and fall and the pain to come and go because that pain is going to come after you. That pain doesn't just hide and go away. The pain can hide, but it will attack you later. And I spoke to a psychiatrist who had done research and he he told me that according to research, 25% of psychiatric hospitalizations were connected to unprocessed grief. So I think I'm calling the, the grief chaos. But also, when you read the Bible, God created the world from a state of chaos. And we also can think of every day as starting in chaos. And also, just thinking of my house, like it's clean, and then a few hours later, it's a mess. Like everything is moving toward entropy. And the question is how to build from that chaos. Okay, let's go on to the next of the C's. And the next C is community. Well, I was new in Israel, but I live in a small village. And Israelis, they, they know how to create a community. And they're not afraid of coming into your house. So <laughs> I was thinking about it because um, when Kobe was killed, we lived in a small rental. It had one bathroom. My children lived in an unfinished attic. And like now I would be embarrassed at what bad shape the house was in. But then I didn't care. But people came, they cleaned up my house at first. Like they arranged the Aranot, the um, cupboards upstairs. They took over. And that community continued for a very long time. For at least a year, people were helping us. Like they took my kids to school and even during the Shiva, the seven years, seven years. That's, that's Felt the, like it at the time. The seven days of mourning, you know, that it, we do as Jews. My son, Daniel, turned 12 and the community made him a birthday party upstairs at the same time that the Shiva was going on downstairs. So... Community is a way of enlarging yourself too. But a lot of times I think resilience is the ability to receive because I really didn't care about my house being a mess and my life being a mess and me crying all the time. Like I wasn't ashamed, but I think some people are ashamed of showing their chaos to the world. But when you can let community in and, you know, Kobe was killed before, right when social media was starting. So I had a real community of people coming in. Like I was thinking about my friend, Jerry Freund, because we had her yard site. You know, she died five years ago. And she went to um, 
Harvard. She was, she went to Radcliffe, she graduated from Radcliffe. And she was in my house. I remember she was cleaning the toilet during the show. <laughs> like everybody did whatever they could to help. But now I think that's what people are searching for on social media is community. That feeling that we're not alone because being alone in trauma exacerbates it. When you don't feel that you're alone, when you feel that other people feel it and care about you, then it gives you a kind of anchor to hold on to and to survive when you're really being battered by like the waves and you feel like you're going to drown. But you do have to let the community in. So let's go to the third one, which is choice. And you believe we can always choose. So tell me more. Right. There's always a choice to be made. And I remember when Kobe was killed, I mean, I, because as I'm an Orthodox Jew, we cover our hair, the women. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to the cemetery. And in, in Israel, you die, you're buried right away. Like usually you're buried the next day, that day or the next day. Like we don't wait for funerals. So that morning, my son had been on his way to school to eighth grade. Of course, he skipped school and he went hiking by himself with a friend with Yosef Ishran and they were bludgeoned to death. But I had to, like by two o'clock, they were telling me, you have to, you know, there's going to be a funeral. And I remember I went into my closet to get dressed and I picked out which hat I was going to wear, what color. And at the same moment that I picked out that color, I thought to myself, you are so disgusting. How could you possibly care about what color beret you're going to wear? And at the same time, a voice in my head said, no, that is a sign that you're going to survive because you're choosing. And, you know, I felt like I was so vain and disgusting, but actually it showed that there was still life. And, And I recognized it at that moment. But Also, the social worker and the rabbis, they came, I was in my room and my husband came in and they said that we had to choose where Kobe was going to be buried because there's a cemetery here where I live and there's one in Jerusalem and then there's one in a nearby village. And they advised us not to bury him here because then we would see it all the time. And so we had to make that choice. But starting to make choices gives you like empowerment. And also it's the first thing that happened once people were created in the Bible, that they had to make a choice, whether to eat that from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But there's something about choosing because it tells us that we have power. And I also, I trained as a pastoral counselor and I worked in the hospital. And I think being a victim is when you feel you have no choice. There's nothing you can do. You're powerless. But I saw people in the hospital who were still making choices, like up to the day they died, basically. You know, there was somebody in the hospital. He was trying to get an internet. And well, it was a betting site. He was trying to get a betting site (laughs) up on the internet so he could get money for his kids. And it was up till the day before he died. But it also gave him life because he was still alive. You know, he. He didn't want to talk about his death. And, you know, like as a pastoral counselor, my job was really to get him to face his death or, you know, that's, I was training 
And that's how I understood it. But later I understood, no, my job was to follow him where he needed to go. So next we come to creativity. And why is creativity so important in resilience? Well, first of all, God is so creative, right? That was what God did. He created the world. And this creation that we're part of is so exquisite. Like yesterday, I read an article about snails. And (laughs) snails have, they have teeth in their tongue. They have thousands of teeth, little teeth in their tongue. And they need calcium snails for their shell. So they can eat dirt or rocks. And they kind of lick that dirt. And that's how they get calcium for their shells. So if God can be so creative in how he designs animals, little animals, like the smallest animals, then think of like just people and nature and the grand design. I think that we're just part of a grand design and that when we're creative, we partner with God in recognizing that kind of exquisite design and then also partnering with God to recognize it and even redesign or recreate. So you say that writing is a spiritual tool and you tell the story about a rabbi, Rabbi Pinchas. Is that the right pronunciation? That's fine. It'll do. I'm I'm sorry. And he was around a very long time ago, and he wrote that a man's soul will teach him. There is no man who's not constantly being taught by his soul. And his disciples said then, well, why don't men follow their souls? Which is a very good question. And his reply was, the soul teaches constantly, but it never repeats. And I think this is how writing fits in as a spiritual tool, because writing helps us remember that moment of of lesson, doesn't it? Well, writing is recording in a way. And so when you record, you're noticing. You, You know, in Judaism, and especially in Hasidic thought, the world is kind of a message. The world is always sending us messages. And lots of times we miss the message. And also, I think that the soul does repeat, but it does it in various permutations. So you're not going to get the exact same story, you know, but it will be original and creative. And when you take that and you write it down, then it's raw material that you can work with. I mean, I think in therapy, also, you're taking that material and working with it. But in writing, you're using, well, you also in therapy, you're using a different language sometimes. You know, it's not the only means of remembering, but I think there are people who need to write things down because it's the only way that they will remember it and be able to use that raw material. It's almost like clay, you know, for a potter. You have to have the raw material to work with. So what do you say to people who feel that they are not creative, that actually you know, they're a scientist or whatever, but actually they're not creative. I mean, do you believe them when they say that, Cheryl? Well, first of all, some creativity can be thought of as play. And everybody knows how to play because everybody was a child. So it's just a matter of playing 
with whatever you love. I mean, like, for example, if you love to bake, so it's seeing baking as a tool of creativity. I'm not very good at baking. You know, I bake the same things all the time, but it's definitely a means of creativity. But I think also going for a walk and just looking at the trees and seeing how they grow, the different ways they grow, that's also being creative. Your thought can be creative if you try to look at things in a new way or to see what's being offered to you in the world. Because everything is like a shidduch. A shidduch is like a part like a matchmaking. Everything in the world is sort of like matchmaking, that you have to be ready to find that partner. And that partner has to be ready for you. But also in the world, there's all kinds of shidduchim, all kinds of matchmaking in terms of what you experience and how you process it. And if you process it in a playful way or a way that includes play, then it allows you to kind of rise above what you already know. I think creativity is always expanding what you know. So scientists in their own way are very creative because they're always looking for a new theorem, a new hypothesis. They're looking for a formula that up till now doesn't exist. So it doesn't have to be creativity in terms of just the arts. It can be also creativity in how you live. So I love a quote of yours, and um, I'd like you to expand on it and explain it to us. Every shepherd has his own special song, as does each blade of grass. Yeah, that's Rabbi Nachman, a rabbi from, I think, the 1800s, who's like very revered by a lot of followers. Every blade of grass has its own song. Yeah, in Judaism, we have something, it's called Perak Shira. It's the song of the animals, that each animal has a song of praise that they sing to God. But in a way, you could say the whole universe is singing because everybody has its unique tafkid, its unique purpose in creation. And if you think of the world as an orchestra, then everybody has a role to play. And, you know, even each rock or each blade of grass has a way of singing to God. And so you have creativity in yourself. It's just a question of finding how you want to be creative. Because, I mean, I think it's one of the great sorrows of our times is that unless you are a superstar, you're not allowed to be creative. It's okay for Barbara Streisand and Michael Jackson to be creative, but not Andrew Marshall and Sherry Mandel. But I mean, both of us have grabbed grabbed the mantle of creativity. But what about other people who have all these obstacles to creativity? How do you get past the obstacles? Well, first of all, getting past the obstacles. I think just in life, personally, I don't think we always get past obstacles, but we just live with them. So you can say, like, let's say somebody wants to make mosaics, but they say, no, I don't have the time. I can't do it. But if you just start, right, it's just starting. It's just giving yourself five minutes to start. Once you begin, there's an acceleration. So it's not giving yourself permission to be creative. It's giving yourself permission to take, you know, 10 little tiles and put them on a piece of wood and to just to start in a smaller way and then see if you want to expand and see what works for you and to try different things or to take a class. Like right now, 
I'm taking a class in drumming. Oh, how wonderful. (laughs) Tell me about your drumming class. Well, first of all, it's offered down the street. It's like five houses away. So I'm like, I have to take it. But what's fun about it is that, you know, I don't have to be good. There's no winning or losing here. And it can just be fun. So it's just wonderful because he'll play a beat and then we try to play it. And I just adore it because it focuses my brain in a way that it's never been focused before. And also what he says a lot of times is that it's not the downbeat that's so important. It's the pause, the pause Mm. between beats. So it's a kind of letting go that there's always this beat and then the response to that or the rebound. And that that's also important. And, And I feel like that's part of creativity, that there's always a forward motion and that, you know, a giving and a receiving. And that receiving often is where we can sort of elevate ourselves creatively and spiritually. But often we don't give ourselves time to receive. How do we stop judging? Because I think that is the real enemy of creativity. You know, I think we all have that judge within us that critic that says, you're no good. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? And just to, well, in my book, in the Kabbalah of writing, I have an exercise where you write to that voice and say, you're just not going to stop me. You know, you can try as hard as you want and maybe what you say is true, but I'm going to continue. You know, I feel like after Kobe was killed, like for example, my Hebrew is not very good and it was really bad when Kobe was killed but I had a greater goal. So I would speak Hebrew with all the mistakes and all my weakness, but it didn't matter because I had a goal. So similarly, if you have a goal, even when that voice is talking to you, you can say, but I have a mission. So you're not going to stop me. And just to understand that that judge is always going to be there, but she doesn't have to stop you. So what's your goal in the drumming then? Oh my my goal in the drumming is to have fun and learn something new and also maybe work my brain in a way it hasn't worked before. And I think, unfortunately, when people say goals, they immediately, and I love your goals, by the way, I think they're wonderful goals, they immediately think they have to be playing at Madison Square Gardens or they're up there with Ringo Starr and Keith Moon or people like that. You can just have fun. That's a beautiful goal. Yeah. I think just to enjoy life so often, we just don't let ourselves enjoy things. I mean, I'm really guilty of that too, because even with the drumming, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I could be part of a group one day, but, <laughs> but, but I'm much happier when I'm just doing it for no reason. You know, I remember in college, I was studying natural resources, which would be ecology now. And I took a course with Archie Ammons, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. So I was taking all science classes except for this one poetry class. And he really encouraged me because one day he said, just Sherry, will you read all the poems you wrote this semester to the class? And so then I spoke to him afterwards and he said to me, you know, the prizes, they're great, but they don't mean that much to me. What means the most to me is the act of writing and the act of writing is its own reward. And I think the more that we can connect to that, you know, dancing or painting or cooking, just 
being one with those activities and being present with them, that's its own reward. And, you know, the more, now that I'm a grandmother, I see how important play is just to be able to play. And because play just brings you into that moment and it's not prescribed play. You don't have a script for it. And so there's some kind of liberation in play. So how has writing helped in the journey of recovery from your son's murder? Yeah, that's a good question. How has writing helped me heal? First of all, I'm a writer. Like, I need to write. I prefer, I have to write. Please, God, keep me writing. Because it's how I process things. Like, I don't really process well from just hearing things. And I remember even in school, like as a little girl, I would write things down because I needed words. So first of all, just being able to go into that state of writing, because for some people writing, you know, it relaxes your brain and you produce different brain waves. But also I was able to enlarge the story through writing about it because, you know, I had the story of Kobe's murder. But that year after Kobe's murder, a lot of things, a lot of spiritual things happened. And when I started writing about them, and then when I started trying to organize the book, Kobe was killed in a cave. And the first part of the book, I, a lot of it was about the pain and the darkness and Kobe and Yosef being murdered in this cave. And I didn't really know what the second part of the book was. And then one day I went to a lecture by Aviva Zornberg, who's a Torah scholar here in Jerusalem. And she was talking about a bird's nest. And I realized that the second part of the book was the bird's nest. And that the bird's nest was the opposite image of the cave. Because the cave was dark and closed. But the bird's nest was open to the light and it was a place of birth. So once I started working with that imagery, that imagery has the ability to reverberate with one's experience. So when you're writing, the story that you create can actually change the story in reality. And it becomes a different story through imagination. And we all have that capacity to change our lives through imagination. And that is really powerful because there's a, an idea in analysis and psychotherapy of the power of an image that actually is more powerful than a whole set of words. And you have two extraordinary images, the cave and the bird's nest. And that sort of, in a sense, encapsulates your journey, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And there's a lot of content also both Jewish content and, you know, regular content connected to caves and bird's nests. Because in the bird's nest, in my first book, um, what's it called? The Blessing of a Broken Heart. (laughs) I wrote it 21 years ago. It talks about the bird's nest that in Kabbalah, it says that the Messiah waits in, it's called the supernal bird's nest. That's where the Messiah waits to redeem the world. So it also has spiritual meaning. And once I connected to that spiritual meaning, I realized that our story, first of all, it was a personal story, the the murder of our son, but it was also a national story 
you know, at least in Israel. And then it became a larger spiritual story when I read about the place of the bird's nest in Jewish mysticism. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at one of the letters that you've written in. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. There are many ways of participating in The Meaningful Life. If you've yet to sign up for my Substack newsletter, please do do that because every two weeks I send out a helpful article that I've written. At least I hope it's helpful anyway. People tell me it's helpful. And also there's news about The Meaningful Life and we point up particular episodes you might have missed. So if you go to my podcast page, which is www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts, you'll find details of how to sign up for my Substack newsletter. And as well, there's a way of writing and telling me about a dilemma that you're having and you'd like me to find somebody to help with. And this is the letter that I found for Sherry. My husband cheated on me years ago, got a girl pregnant and has lived with her since. The whole time he's maintained that he loves me and is waiting for her to end the relationship. His reasoning has always been that he may never see his daughter if he leaves her. I just went on with my life, but we did maintain an intimate connection. I felt like I always was trying to win. He really is in love with me and not her. The problem is that after three years of this, I've lost interest in the competition. I started flirting with another man, and even though that relationship has very little potential, it was enough of an eye-opener to make me not interested in my husband anymore. But you guessed it. He's pushing harder and asking me to give him a bit more time to deal with the girlfriend issue. We have two kids together. I believe one day I could find another man, but on the other hand, I wonder how likely it is I could ever want to try again with my husband. I think he has always thought the day his relationship with his girlfriend ends, he can just come home. And he was probably right until now, and I don't know what to do. Sherry. Okay. First of all, I find this letter very disturbing. I understand that the person who wrote it is in a lot of pain, but it starts with the first, you know, words are, my husband cheated on me years ago. And so that act of cheating is a betrayal. But what I hear in the rest of the letter is that the wife is still holding on to that relationship, even though her husband is living with another woman and a child. That part I find very painful because of being torn like that. And when I'm reading it, I'm, I'm thinking of the expression like, you know, if this is love, who needs it? You know, he, says he, still, he, still, he says he still loves her. You know, it's sort of like from Fiddler on the Roof, like what is love? There's, there's different kinds of love. And what I want to know about this woman is why she's still holding on to him because it seems that he's, it's a self-destructive act to hold on to him. What I hear here, you know, in Kabbalah, there's the 10 spherot. There are 10 channels of divine design, 10 channels that God sends to manifest his energy and to limit his energy in the world. 
And two of them are chesed, which is kindness. And then the second one is gevura, which is limitation or restriction. And if you just have kindness, unbridled kindness is not kind. So allowing this to go on in the name of love, because really love is also kindness, is a mistake because it's not kindness or love. It becomes a kind of masochism, I think, to allow somebody else to control your destiny. So I feel like there's something missing from this letter. What do you think is missing? I think the backstory is missing. I think the story of this woman's childhood and what she saw as marriage is missing because she's willing to make a lot of allowance and excuses for somebody who is really gone, you know, and has left, has flown the coop. And she's willing to allow him to control her destiny for years now already. It seems like she's in a cave, doesn't it? That's the image that is coming to me really strongly. She's in a cave, isn't she? Well, I think in terms of not being able to see. Yes, exactly. And feeling very restricted that there's sort of, you know, it is a cave. It's not a cave with a passageway in the back of it. It's just a bloody cave, isn't it? And from time to time, she comes um, staying with the image. From time to time, she comes out and um, she sniffs the air and, you know, she sees the world passing by. And every time she does that, the man pulls her back into the cave again. Where she pulls herself back into the cave. Well, she allows herself to be pulled back into the cave. You know, he's sort of beckoning her, come back into my beautiful, dark, horrible cave. Right. I mean, <laughs> hope, it's like hope springs eternal. But the question is what she learned in childhood, what she saw in childhood. You know, did she have a father? Did she have a mother? Like, what happened to her to allow her to say, I'm going to stay in this cave until he wants me back? You know, because what also, when she says we have two kids together, that's when I, I almost get angry because he's staying there for his new child. That's his rationale. But she has children. And what kind of message is she sending to her own kids if she doesn't allow herself to get out of that cave? So let's help her in some way move forward. So I think we need an image I mean, at the moment, I'm, this is, I'm just going in complete madness, but, <laughs> but, some, but I'm just going to go with it. So help me with this. For some okay. reason, I see this cave halfway up a mountain, to be honest. I don't see it on the ground level. You know, I think there is a view outside here. And I sort of wanted to go to the mouth of the cave and, and look out and take a really deep breath and see and think where she wants to go to. I mean, I think she needs, back to your goals, she needs some goals. And what could be sensible goals at this point? Yeah, well, I was going to say she needs community. Right. I think she needs either someone to take her out, to go to therapy, to go to a group, to feel connected to something else. And then then maybe she could have the goal of leaving that cave. But, you know, when you said it's on a mountain, it's very hard to get out of a cave on a mountain. Yeah. Because it's very steep. You know, first of all, you're in the darkness. A real cave, it's so dark, you can't get out by yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like going back to community, I think it's very important to find people to help us and to have a team. 
and that maybe this woman just doesn't have a team. Like I can imagine my mother, if I was, God forbid, in that kind of relationship, my mother would like kick me in the tuchus. <laughs> you know, like my friends would say, you got to get out of this. This is not healthy. This is so damaging. And that maybe she needs a team who can help her, you know, tie her, her own rope to pull herself out of there. Yeah. And if you're going to go down the side of a mountain, a team is going to be really useful, isn't it? Right. Because you need someone to hold that rope so you don't fall. Exactly. You know, I think she's just very vulnerable. There's also the passion. I think that's the other element, that there's this passion for somebody who is not available. And that passion is very compelling. It's much easier to be in love with somebody who doesn't want you, you know, and that passion can kind of be overwhelming. But I don't want another lover being on your team helping you rescue, because I think that there's a danger that if you do that, you're moving from one cave to another. I think it's going to be other women, to be perfectly honest. I think you need Sherry's mother to on your team. <laughs> Even if you don't know her, imagine her. And you need to bring that kind of energy, those kind of people in. You know, if you haven't got them, you know, go off and do the drumming class or whatever so that you're actually meeting new people. You're bringing new things into your life so that you've got more to look at and you've got things to tempt you out of that cave. Right. Like in Hebrew, kavod, which is respect, kavod, it's related to the word kaved, which is heavy. And I think that this woman can find more respect by giving more weight to her own integrity. You know, and that, I think that's what you're saying about finding these women. Find these women who will provide weight for you until you can discover your own like weightiness in the world. I don't mean like being fat. I mean like, you know, what matters. You're going to need somebody really weighty holding on to the end of the rope, aren't you? Who's got their feet very solidly on the ground as you're going down. You need somebody encouraging you along the way. You need somebody helping sort of put handholds in and saying, you know, a bit more over to the right. Right. You need stability. And yeah. that's the thing. This, this writer is very unstable right now. She's in an unstable relationship. She's looking to this other guy she's flirting with and knowing that there's no stability there. And it's almost like she's on top of, like we're using, like on top of a mountain and trying to cross a, a string across a mountain, a rope across the mountain and she has nothing to hold on to. Yeah. Well, I hope that was helpful. And if you'd like similar weird and wonderful wisdom. But we, we got there eventually. You know where to, you know where to find me. Oh dear, the love it's this is creativity. This is creativity in action. That um it's weird and wonderful, but it sort of doesn't really matter. Actually, those images can be really powerful and you have to sort of go with them and see where you get to. Right. Anyway, so thank you very much, Sherry, for being a witness on The Meaningful Life. Yeah, I um, always, I, I love solving, you know, I love giving advice. I mean, I try not to give advice to people who don't ask me, but there's something about it that's so much fun because it's not your problem, Right. So as a witness on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you, what gives your life meaning? First of all, I think my whole life has been a search for meaning, that it's always been important to me. 
because I'm just not a person who's naturally materialistic. You know, like I can't remember what color the floor is in my house. It just, I, I need something deeper. So family, I think now is really the most important thing to me that gives me the most meaning. And after my son was murdered, it was like in flashing lights that the only thing that mattered to me was keeping my family safe now and keeping my family together. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s, which was the time of feminism. And actually, I grew up with the idea that you didn't really need to get married. You didn't really need to have kids. Like, and it is true. People are self-sufficient. But I think there's something about family that allows you to grow in a way that you wouldn't grow otherwise. And it also gives you a team and everybody needs a team. Everybody needs support and people need to love. So it gives you a natural place to love and to be loved. Writing gives my world meaning because I'm always looking for a story. And you know, there's something called narrative therapy. And narrative therapy is where you you take a story and you change the story. You have the opportunity to change the story with your imagination. But then a big part of narrative therapy is being witnessed. And that the act of somebody hearing your story is important. But what's even more important is if they're changed by your story. So I've had people like in my book, in my first book, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, I tell the story of Kobe's birthday, his 14th birthday, which was five weeks after he was murdered. And my friend Shira Chernobyl, who was also a grief counselor, she told me I had to do something to mark Kobe's birthday. And we didn't know what to do. And I went to Jerusalem with my kids and we didn't know what to do. And then we were in a restaurant and I sat down and with my kids and all of a sudden, these two words fell into my head, 14 beggars, because Kobe would have been 14. And I got the idea for us to go give money to 14 beggars. <laughs> and then I gave my, I told my kids and once I gave them the money, I gave them, I had a lot of change. I gave them money. And the minute after I told them that idea, a beggar came to our table. Wow. Yeah. And then we went out on the streets of Jerusalem. We were running after beggars. It was like... <laughs> We needed beggars. <laughs> so it really, it transformed the day. And then after that, every year, we would give money to beggars. Do you change the amount of beggars you find as oh, years yeah, go was, by? Yeah, like, you know, 15, 16, 17. We've stopped now, which is great because we're like too busy and we have too many other things going on. But, you know, that transformed the story. Anyway, I wrote about that and it was witnessed. And then, you know, people tell me things that they do on the birthday of their son. And some have even done what we did so that the story becomes enlarged and it becomes, it's not just my story. It becomes a bigger story. So I think writing in that way can give a lot of meaning to experience. Well, we could talk forever, but unfortunately we're running out of time. 
if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation goes on because you might have noticed we said there were seven C's of uh, (laughs) resilience and we've done the first four, but there are three more, which are commemoration, consecration and celebration. So we'll be talking about those in a moment. If you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, Here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.